The following program is part of the Inner Circle Podcasting Group. Go to innercirclecomics.com for more This podcast is brought to you by the Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and by listeners like you. Go to twoheadednerd.com and click donate now to become a supporter. Hey, this is Dean Clean with the Dead Milkman, and you're listening to THN with Joe and Matt. Sort of break it, break it down like good. Broadcasting from the Curtis Hotel in downtown Denver, Colorado, it's my pleasure to welcome you to episode 221 of THN, where we're talking comics and nerd news for the week of Wednesday, August 26th. My name is Matt Baum. That's at Matt Baumstein on the Twitter. And when I'm not making anchor babies all over the Asian subcontinent, just in case I got to get out of the States, I am writing the Comic Speculator blog for WorkPoint.com. And I'm Joe Patrick at Joe Patrick 116 on the Twitter. And when I'm not watching my Chinese investments go swirling down the toilet, I'm the manager of Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. Ooh, too soon for Chinese stock market jokes. We're going to have to change that bio, man. Yesterday was my last day at Legend. Oh, that's right. You got fired. I forgot. Yeah, I was fired. Stealing from the register. Always the same with you. Jesus. This week, you'll hear reviews of Drive, number one, and Zodiac Star Force, number one. After that, we'll review ten of this week's new comics, Faster Than Star Fox Can Hunt Down the Ashley Madison Hackers During the Ludicrous Speed Round, and then... We'll visit the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where the new black racer, Barry Allen, will be sitting down with us to discuss his new job and what comics he's excited to read next week. And finally, it's time to sit down with a whole damn graphic novel, pardon me, manga, when we review Pluto for the first ever manga installment of Take a Look, It's in a Book. It's all happening, nerds. But before we wade into these nerd-infested waters, let's take a moment to say goodbye to legendary backboard-shattering Dunkmaster Daryl Chocolate Thunder Dawkins, who passed away this week at 58. Too soon. I loved that guy. There's one thing we learned from Dawkins. It's you do not fake the funk on a nasty dunk. Now, let's talk about this week's big news. We got big news. First Second has announced a new line of educational graphic novels called Science Comics, launching in spring 2016. Dinosaurs by M.K. Reed and Joe Flood and Coral Reefs by Maris Wicks will be the first volumes released with Volcanoes by John Chad following next fall. With titles like that, I have no idea what these will be about. (laughs) No clue. Future volumes published one per season will tackle subjects like flying machines, bats, and the solar system. In their press release, First Second said, quote, The science comics books will be narrow focus, single topic, 128-page narrative nonfiction graphic novels. Fancy way of saying comic books, folks. <laughs> and a new volume will be published each season. The series will be written and drawn by some of the finest graphic novelists in the industry and feature introductions by leading experts Each book will cover topics from the fields of biology, chemistry, and physics, subjects that are part of the classroom curriculum and can easily be worked into lesson plans. Readers will not only engage with the combination of words and pictures in electrifying narrative nonfiction, (laughs) electrifying narrative nonfiction, (laughs) (laughs) but they'll also discover the biodiversity in coral reefs. Learn about the origins of the universe in the deepest reaches of space. Figure out how volcanoes shape the Earth and more, end quote. Now, Matt, 
Where were these when we were in school? God, I would have stayed in school. I would have never dropped out as a fifth grader if there were comic books that I could have read to learn all this stuff. This is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant. Rather than putting a textbook in front of a kid, stick a comic in front of him and watch him burn through it. I mean, think about all the dumb crap that you memorized from reading Spider-Man comics over the years and stuff. Now imagine they were like, oh, yeah, I read this thing about coral reefs. I can tell you exactly how they work. You know, I read it when I was like eight. Yeah, there are all kinds of studies about how uh, retention rates are way higher when you put things in the context of a graphic novel or a comic book. There have been scientific studies. So this seems like an idea that's way past its time. Absolutely. I just worried, will like the Texas school districts be able to like have their own comic books where like <laughs> certain presidents didn't exist and the earth is 5,000 years old and stuff like that, yeah, you know? Yeah, they go out and uh, commission a graphic novel by Chuck Dixon and Ethan Van Skyver about how <laughs> evolution isn't real. No, this is absolutely brilliant. And now the only thing I do see pushback from some school districts and some teachers, because they're going to look at this and go, they're just comic books. This isn't a textbook. No, we're not doing this. Yeah, well, those people are dumb and should have read more comics as a kid. They are dumb, and I hate them. In other news, Marvel has added an issue to the seemingly never-ending Secret Wars miniseries. I think it's technically a maxi-series now. The event, which was supposed to wrap up with the eighth issue in October, will now run until issue number nine, which won't hit stands until December. Quote, Apparently, Secret Wars is even bigger than we thought it was, said editor-in-chief Axel Alonso. To help Jonathan and Isad, that's Isad Ribic, conclude the epic event as big and bombastically as it started, we are adding an extra issue. That means one more month of the suspense, action, and game-changing storytelling that fans and retailers have been clamoring for since the final incursion started, or at least since the first two issues came out. Sounds great, right? Another issue of a series we've all been kind of digging can't be bad. Not so fast, says BleedingCool.com. The rumor site reports that the extra content may be coming at the expense of other upcoming issues. Secret Wars 6 has already slipped on the schedule to mid-September. Secret Wars 7 is dropping from 56 pages to 40 pages and from $4.99 to $3.99, which is not necessarily a bad thing, and is now scheduled for the 28th of October. Secret Wars 8 is also dropping in price and page count, and we published on November 25th. Don't worry, though. Marvel wants you to know that everything is going to be fine. Quote, this extra issue will not affect any of the new launches as part of all new, all different Marvel. I feel like there should be a the in there, right? Said yeah. David Gabriel, Marvel SVP, sales and marketing. I don't know what an SVP is. Senior vice president. Oh, I was going super vice president. But yeah. there might be a surprise or two left over from Battleworld you weren't expecting. In fact, like the original Secret Wars, some of those puzzle pieces will hit the Marvel Universe before the event concludes. But if you want to see how they all fit together, you don't want to miss these last few issues. There it is. Marvel is saying an extra issue was needed to finish their story, quote, as intended. Joey, do you think when they say as intended, they meant with huge delays and spread over too many issues? <laughs> I don't think that's what they meant, but that's definitely what they, uh, they want to make us forget. Is, right. I mean, they screwed up the scheduling. That's all this is. Yeah. But so you screwed up the scheduling. Why would you trim 32 pages off 
of two planned issues and then tack another one on to an already late book. I, I, I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, unless money, and money, I money, money, money. Yes. With the book already being so late, like it already wasn't going to be over in time for their new relaunch, which is humiliating enough. Right. But so now they're doing all this damage control. Like, don't worry. There's still surprises in store. Wink, wink. <laughs> I just the ball was dropped big time on this event and they're lucky that critically it's being very well received okay it's probably not because of sales because Secret Wars number four was number one in July with 221,000 issues out there so sure. probably not sales probably just money <laughs> but I mean can you imagine if this kind of stuff was going on and it was an event that people were really tired of and not enjoying like oh, some of the other past events. Yeah, like Forever Evil is what I was thinking of, which lasted forever. <laughs> right. Oh, um, the last event, uh, uh, Fear Itself for Marvel, like most people kind of thought was If Fear Itself had been super duper late and they kept tacking on issues. <laughs> yeah. You know, I almost uh, have to wonder if they looked at what Hickman had planned for the end and they went, maybe you could tie it up a little more. You know what I mean? Like maybe have this weird nebulous ending that he yeah, was like, planning. And they were just like, mm. maybe it ended in typical Hickman floating question mark fashion. Right. And people are getting sick of that. I know I am. I know you yeah. are. We've both talked about it. And Marvel, maybe they recognize the audience's need to have a definitive answer to what the new marvel universe is yeah absolutely i'll bet it's closer to that yeah i mean who knows but the bottom line is that they really dropped the ball on this one and i mean at least it's good and the tie-ins are relatively enjoyable though yeah. i am getting tired of them but it does look like a cash grab yeah it does and finally jane bulls was an american writer and playwright whose work is largely unknown in popular culture She's best known for the 1943 novel Two Serious Ladies and the play In the Summer House, which hit Broadway in the early 50s. But those that are fans of Bull's work love her fiercely. And now writer, YouTube sensation and friend of THN, Katie Rex, has launched a Kickstarter project to fund her graphic novel biography of the author. On the fundraiser page, Katie writes, quote, Jane may have been marginalized by the cultural canon, but her contemporaries considered her, quote, one of the finest modern writers, John Ashbery, the most important writer of prose fiction, Tennessee Williams, and further, a genius imp, a laughing, hilarious, tortured elf, Truman Capote. Wow. <laughs> Jane drank more than she wrote, worried more than she worked, and had more epically disastrous love affairs than completed books. By almost any measure, Jane led a fascinating life filled with literary giants and great adventure, and I want to bring her story to life, end quote. The graphic novel will be split into ten chapters, with this Kickstarter funding the first. Each chapter will follow the progression of Jane Bowles' life and feature an adaptation of one of her short stories. The first chapter will be drawn by Peter Panzerfaust's Tyler Jenkins, with backup art by June Vigens. Sorry about that, June. Katie is offering several fabulous backer rewards, including digital and physical copies before they're available anywhere else, an exclusive limited and numbered edition print of Marguerite Sauvage's portrait of Jane Bowles, 
uh, which is beautiful. If you go to the Kickstarter page, it's it is the, very cool. It's the header image. It's very, it's very wonderful. Thank you notes handwritten by Katie while drunk. <laughs> A mini comic written and drawn by Katie, which will be about cocktail recipes of the artistic elite. Nice. And more. Uh, the project has a $12,000 goal and is well over halfway funded with just under two weeks to go by the time you hear this. We'll put a link to the fundraiser in our show notes, so make sure you go and show your support. Matt, I watched Katie's video, and I have never heard of Jane Bowles before this project. But it sounds like she's got a pretty passionate following. I, I don't know of her either, and it's a damn shame, because more and more there are these powerful female creators writers, scientists that have done so much for every field of work that they were in that we're just finding out about now. And it's a damn shame. Chuck D said it best when he said history is truly his story. And it's nice that someone is going out to try and do stuff like this. I'm going to throw some money at it. I think everybody should. This is very oh, me cool. Too. And it looks great. The, yeah. the art by Tyler Jenkins in the first chapter, it looks really fun. And the rewards are interesting. <laughs> like, I love the idea that Katie will get blasted and then write you a very sweet thank you note. Well, if you follow Katie on Twitter, also... I think you'll see that she's blasted just about as often as I am. So <laughs> like, <laughs> not like, I don't think she's going out of her way. <laughs> yeah, no, but, you know, she's, she's she'll put her professionalism aside and have a little fun with it, which I think is great. I love it. I think it's a great thing. I think you should guys should all throw, I mean, a couple bucks at it at least. This is good and we need more of this stuff out there. We really do. Absolutely. And just the idea that her work was so celebrated by the most famous literary voices of that time and no one has heard of her or so many, so few people have heard of her. Yeah, it's a damn shame. It is. It is a real shame. So check it out. Click the link in the show notes. Uh, throw some money at Katie's Project. It's absolutely worth your support. And that is the big news for this week. If you'd like to discuss these stories and everything we missed, hit us up at the THN forums where our two serious ladies fan fiction has taken a turn for the wacky when the two ladies jump into their 43 Ford Vedette to compete in the Cannonball Run race across the U.S. with Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, and a cast of screwball racers hot on their tails. <laughs> I can only assume that's what the play was about. <laughs> it's a complete coincidence that the name of the biography that I wrote about us is called Two Serious Podcasters. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Every week, the most serious of ladies, Joe Patrick, posts the question of the week in the THN forums for you fabulous nerds to tussle with. Joey, what are we asking the listeners this week? This week's question is very timely. It comes from our old friend, Ora McWilliams, who writes, quote, and I apologize, but I just... I edited this a little, but I'm just going to let Aura take us on a journey. Oh, boy. Hey, could you do an answer of the week about Kickstarter? I like As, how he opens up like uh, Will, uh, <laughs> you know, like Harry Carey was performed by Will Ferrell. I demand you read it that way. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Uh, hey, could you do an answer of the week about Kickstarter? <laughs> I'm a bit curious how the listeners feel about this channel of supporting projects. <laughs> Has anyone gotten anything awesome through Kickstarter? <laughs> I've supported three projects and only one has actually worked out. I really wanted them. Just, let's just jump back to normal. All right. <laughs> I really wanted to make it happen and the failures won't stop me, but it sort of disappoints, you know? 
And then there are the controversies like the Archie Kickstarter, which I think was handled wrong a million different ways. Maybe there's a question in there somewhere. End quote. End impression. <laughs> so we're discussing Kickstarter. We want to know yeah. your guys' feelings. What do you think about Kickstarter comics projects? Have you gotten anything cool? Have you been disappointed by anything that didn't work out? Like, what's your biggest disappointment? What's your biggest surprise? That sort of stuff. Yeah. Do you have a horror story? Do you have a success story? Let's hear it. You have until 5 p.m. Central Standard Time this coming Friday, September 4th, to get us your answer. You can call and leave a message using Skype. The Skype panel is two-headed nerd, all one word. Or you can call the Ziggurat hotline, 402-819-4894. If you're feeling serious and fabulous, you can send us an mp3 to 2 nerd at gmail.com. Keep it under two minutes. I know this is kind of a broad topic, but do your best. If you need more time than that, feel free to write your full answer in the question of the week section of the THN web forums, and then tune in next Thursday to hear you and your fellow listeners on the THN Answer of the Week podcast. It's review time on THN, where Joe and I deep pants two of this week's new comics to see if they're going commando. Joe, what are you reviewing? All right, I am reviewing Zodiac Star Force number one from Dark Horse Comics. The comic tailor made for you, by the way. Totally. Written by Kevin Panetta with art by Paulina. Sorry, Paulina. Ganusho. Okay, I'll buy it. Ganusho. Ganusho. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. An elite group of teenage girls with magical powers have sworn to protect our planet against dark creatures as long as they can get out of class. These high school girls aren't just combating math tests, they're also battling monsters. But when an evil force infects team leader Emma, she must work with her team to save herself and the world from the evil Diana and her mean girl minions. <laughs> Bitches, man. (laughs) Some years have passed since the last time Zodiac Star Force assembled, but don't worry, you didn't miss anything. Uh, Panetta chooses to start the story in the aftermath of the team's adventures. Something caused the group to disband, and some members miss it terribly, while others were left traumatized by the experience. But like any good retired superhero story, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Emma is content to resume a normal life, but the forces of darkness won't let her. Luckily, the overly enthusiastic Kim is there to help when Emma is attacked by a shadow monster. Panetta balances the action with the high school drama you'd expect from this kind of story. Monsters are one thing, but boys, parties, meeting new friends, and dealing with rival cliques present their own challenges for the group. Savannah, one of the Star Force members, meets a new friend, Lily, who I think will end up joining the team as a new member. My one complaint about the choice to pick up mid-story, I wanted there to be a little bit more detail about what happened to the group to make them disband and how they became heroes in the first place. There's a lot of vague hinting, and I'm fine with leaving some things a mystery, but I wish there had been a little bit more to connect me to their story. The art and coloring by Paulina Ganusho is really wonderful. It's super cartoony in a Sailor Moon mixed with classic Archie kind of way. Uh, But it's slightly more realistic than the art found in books that fit a similar mold, uh, such as the art by Matt Cummings in Boom Studios' recent Power Up series, which I also reviewed on the show. 
The colors are ethereal and breathtaking, and the character designs are really great. Each person has a unique look, both in their civilian and costume identities. Now look, I'll be the first to admit that I don't normally gravitate toward this kind of rainbow brighty stuff. I pick a lot of it to review on the show because I think it's important to represent it. And you're secretly a girl. Hey, comics are for everyone, Matt. It doesn't matter if I'm a girl or a boy or whatever. Just like Target, we took boys and girls like off of all of our comics. So they're comics for people. We don't see gender anymore. We kiss boys. We kiss girls. We don't care. (laughs) But I thought this was fun and I can't deny it. The art is beautiful. The story is fast paced and engaging. And I liked it a lot. I think this is a great issue to put in the hands of a young girl looking for some butt kicking fun. It's not normally my cup of tea, but on the strength of the execution and the uh, appeal, I think it has to that demographic. I'm giving it a buy it. I'm with you. This was it just looked totally stupid. (laughs) I looked at the cover and I was like, what is Joe doing? And it is it's very Sailor Moon from more of a mean girl's perspective. You know what I mean? Like an Americanized Sailor Moon. But it was funny. It was tongue-in-cheek. It was very well illustrated. I thought Paulina Ganna's show. Sorry about that. But I thought her art was great. Like it was cute, but not overly cartoony. Really well executed. This was just a fun read. And I don't really know what age group they're going for here because it felt like the kind of thing that really anyone could read and have fun with i admit i'm probably not going to read a lot more of it because this isn't really my wheelhouse but this was very well done i got to give it a buy it yeah and that's fair i mean just because i might not pick it up again doesn't mean that i can't recognize the merit in it oh uh, yeah absolutely it's a good book well executed with appeal that's gonna hit a lot of people like you said the art is gorgeous And I can absolutely see what is going to draw people to this comic. And that, I think, deserves a buy it. Matt Bomb, tell me about Drive number one. I'll tell you what this is. This is a comic for dudes by dudes. James Salas Drive number one from IDW. Written by Michael Benedetto with art by Antonio Fuso. You might recognize his name from G.I. Joe Comics he does from IDW. 32 pages, $3.99. Back in 2011, director... Nicholas Wingding, I like to call him Wingding, but I think it's Winding. Refn, R-E-F-N, I don't know. Adapted writer James Salas's novel Drive about a quiet and questionably psychotic Hollywood stunt driver that takes side jobs as a wheelman for criminal activity into a cult hit starring Ryan Gosling. The movie had a new Hollywood noir feeling paired with amazing driving scenes and very little dialogue. Oh, and some completely gratuitous violence, and a kick-ass soundtrack. It really was an impressive and dark film with an incredible performance by the virtually silent Ryan Gosling. Here, Benedetto is adapting the original novel to comic format, but the overall feel of the movie is definitely present. Fuso's art is blocky and harder-edged than usual, and his colors accentuate the neon feel of L.A. at night. His figure work is great, as always, but he's strapped with the nearly impossible job of making road tricks and car stunts look cool on the printed page. There was a scene where the driver is on the set behind the wheel for a stunt, and I honestly could not follow what was going on. Car chases are typically frowned upon in comics because they are just so hard to adapt to the medium, and here 
we really saw why. I want to stop you real quick. Uh, that that scene stood out to me as well. And there are other comics that I think that have managed to capture car chases and car stunts much better than this one did. Absolutely. It's very difficult. I'm not taking anything away from Fuso. Uh, we have seen it done and we have enjoyed it. But if it's something, if it's a task you're going to take on, you better bring it. <laughs> no doubt. I admit here, I, I haven't read the novel, but like you heard, I did love the movie. In the film, Gosling's character really doesn't talk at all, but seems to have a lot going on behind his eyes. I loved how they portrayed it, and it lent real mystery to his background and personality. Here, Benedetto takes us into the main character's head as he explains his reasoning for driving a certain kind of car or living in a certain type of apartment, and it, it just didn't work for me at all. Any mystery about the main character disappears in the first two pages with his constant narration, and he seems to become another generic tough guy with like a V10-sized chip on his shoulder. Again, I haven't read the novel, and maybe this characterization is right on. Also, it might not be fair for me to punish a comic adaptation based on what I loved about the film, but uh, I've never claimed to be a good reviewer either, so eat it. Adapting yeah. a story like this... Start your own podcast, jerk. <laughs> adapting a story like this with a character as complex as the one played by Gosling in the film is not a job I would want, and honestly, Benedetto and Fuso did a perfectly good job. The look is here... But the characterization is where it falls down. In the movie, we had Brian Cranston's character, who was sort of the mechanic that worked with the driver, telling the viewer through conversation about the driver. Here, we just get macho-sounding inner dialogue that came off cheesy at best, and some real failures of car chases. I can only give this a skim it. It was borderline leave it. I agree with the rating. I liked it, I think, a little bit more than you. But I agree, it did fall down in some respects. The car chase scenes seemed a little stiff. In the absence of moving pictures and and the things that we would get from the movie, you know, the soundtrack, the things that would help fill in the story when there's no dialogue. Right. Exposition was the only tool they had, really. And I agree that the novel might be like that. But it did take away from some of the mystery. So maybe, you know, we are doing it a disservice by comparing it to the film, but really that's the only context I have. It's true. And I just don't know if a concept like this lends itself to comic book adaptation right. very well. I just don't think it worked. It just didn't work for me. Yeah. So, I mean, it might be unfair to compare how much I liked the comic to how much I liked the movie, but I do think it's fair to say that I think the movie does a better job uh, it presents uh, the driver character as a much more compelling figure yes. than the comic did. Absolutely. There, well, there's no way they went into this without thinking that people aren't going to compare this to the movie. That's impossible. It's just impossible. because. Well, yeah, the movie's the only reason this book got made. Right. And Salas's Drive was not like a best-selling novel or something. It was a book discovered by Wingding Refn, who decided he wanted to make the movie. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm giving it a skim it as well. It's good. I'll probably read the next one, but uh, I'm, I'm just not as hooked into it as I wanted to be. So that is a double buy it for Zodiac Star Force and a double skim it for drive number one. 
As always, we want to know what you silent but deadly stunt drivers and Sailor Moon wannabes thought of these comics. So, burn out your virtual tires heading to THN forums and hit us with your opinions by clicking the forum button at TwoHeadedNerd.com. With the recent hacking of the Ashley Madison website and the outing of cheaters everywhere, several lawsuits have been filed against the site owners, but one user is taking matters into his own hands. Galactic super lover Star Fox was one of Ashley Madison's heaviest users, and rather than pursuing his case in court, he's tracking down the site's hackers one by one and threatening to break their fingers if they leak info on his many sexcapades. Because if there's one thing Eternals don't do, it's kiss and tell. That's right. So join Matt and I while we watch The Hunt on Star Fox private YouTube channel while we review 10 more of this week's comics during the Ludicrous Speed Round. Ludicrous Speed, go! Book of Death, Fall of Ninjak, number one from Valiant. Valiant's Book of Death series peers far into the future of the Valiant U and shows us the final fate of their heroes. Here, writer Matt Kent gives us the story of a much older Ninjak that's learned to control the cells of his own body through meditation. Trevor Hairsign's art is amazing as ever, and I really like the future look at the Eternal Warrior and Ninjak's relationship. Valiant seems to be able to do no wrong. I'm saying buy it. Shield, number nine, from Marvel. Mark Wade and company deliver a pretty inconsistent anniversary issue celebrating everyone's favorite clandestine spy organization. He even ties the current incarnation of S.H.I.E.L.D. to the Jonathan Hickman version. What? But I wasn't that thrilled with the results. But the previously unseen Jack Kirby pages were fun to see, and the Howling Commandos prelude by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli was legitimately great. Love Caselli. I went from being annoyed that they were making a monster version of the Howling Commandos to being genuinely excited about it. Overall, this was a pretty mixed bag. I'm giving it a skim it. Yeah, I thought the Howling Commandos were always werewolves. I didn't know. No, the Howling Commandos was I'm like... I'm kidding. Dumb- I'm kidding. You jerk. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> New management, number one from Dark Horse. Writer Matt Kent brings his mind-bending mind management to a close with a one-shot that doesn't answer a lot of questions, but hell, I'll take as much mind migment as I can get. This was a sweet send-off that left me with as many questions as I ever had about this bizarre series, and I'm going to miss the hell out of it. And hopefully my wife is listening and buys me the complete hardcover series for Christmas. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this series. I'm giving this a huge buy it. This really was the only way they could end it, too, with us going, what the hell? (laughs) Were you actually all caught up on it? Yeah. Man, you hardly ever talk about it. Uh, just because it was just like hard to go in and review any part of it. You know what I mean? Sure. Because it was such a bizarre story, but I loved it. Neuerness one shot from Ad House Books. This was a gift from our pal Camarillo Brillo, who recently discovered the work of a French cartoonist named Boulet and wanted to share it with the gang at Legend. Aww. Noirness is a hilarious one shot about one man's struggle dealing with his dark, brooding, and mysterious roommate. <laughs> Like, whenever the roommate sweeps into the room, there's mist everywhere and captions <laughs> that, that, like, Boulay can see. He's like, where are those captions coming from? <laughs> Boulay's very Scott work- Pilgrim, basically. <laughs> yeah, right. Boulay's work is amazing. And this was actually created over the span of 24 hours, which makes uh, me feel very self-conscious about my own meager abilities. Yeah. How's that uh, Untold Tales of THN coming, by the way? (laughs) 
It's going great, buddy. Yeah. Going great. Definitely seek out this artist. And if you can track down this one shot, buy it. Stringers, number one from Oni. Writer Mark Guggenheim really enjoyed the movie Nightcrawler and wrote a comic about two amateur news photographers, or stringers as they're called, that bravely chase police pursuits for money. The plot was not as close to Nightcrawler as I thought it would be, but still very reminiscent. I really enjoyed the chemistry between the two main characters, though. There's a lot of back-and-forth dialogue that Guggenheim handles very well, and it was legitimately funny. I'm giving this a strong skimming, because it really did remind me a lot of the movie. Hank Johnson, Agent of Hydra, one shot from Marvel. What a tremendous surprise this was. Veep showrunner David Mandel teams with Secret Avengers artist Michael Walsh for a hilarious story about a rank-and-file Hydra agent trying to keep his middle-class family life together in the midst of superhero insanity. This was hands down the best thing I read all week, and I absolutely wasn't expecting it. If I had not already written my full Zodiac Star Force review when I read this, I'd have done this for my main. Wow. It was awesome. An absolute buy it. Black Tiger, number one from Graphic India. When I first started reading Batman in the mid-90s, writer Chuck Dixon and artist Graham Nolan were the creative team. I instantly fell in love with their work on The Dark Knight. And here, I see shades of it. Graphic India is trying to create a cadre of Indian superheroes, but they're doing it with American creators, which, kind of weird. While the story is set in New Delhi, Nolan certainly doesn't go out of his way to make any of the characters look anything but white. <laughs> with that said, this isn't a bad superhero story, and Nolan's art still does the job. It's equal parts Batman and Daredevil. But I have to give it a skim it. Just telling me that it takes place in New Delhi doesn't make it feel especially Indian to me. I'm not looking for Spider-Man India here. I just feel like they could have gone a little further with it. Well, are the characters, like, colored? No. Not, darker complected? Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I even showed... I was sitting next to my buddy on the plane yesterday when I was reading it, and I showed it to him, like, like, what do you think this character's name is, if you had to guess? And he was like, I don't know, Chuck Polanski or something. He's like, no, <laughs> this is like Uncle Rajesh or something like that. <laughs> sure. The 7% Solution, number one, from IDW. This is a comic adaptation of Nicholas Meyer's novel of the same name, telling the quote-unquote real story of Sherlock Holmes's final battle against Moriarty. This wasn't at all what I expected. It's far from the typical Sherlock Holmes story, but I liked it a lot. Scott and David Tipton do a great job with the script, and Ron Joseph's art suits the story very well. Fun fact, Nicholas Meyer also wrote and directed Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. No way! So I guess I shouldn't be too surprised that I enjoyed it. I'm oh. giving it a buy it. Okay. I love David Tipton, too. That guy's really talented. The Last Days of Ant-Man, number one from Marvel. The Ant-Man creative team of writer Nick Spencer and Ramon Rosanas tell the story of the last day before the incursion that sent the whole Marvel U to Battleworld. And, like the monthly, it's witty, well-drawn, and just a ton of fun. I love this title. And Nick Spencer is having so much fun with the premise before multiversal worlds come crashing into one another, ending the story very, very suddenly. It's great because Ant-Man talks to this woman that can see the future and she's like, yeah, the world's going to end like today. <laughs> and Ant-Man's just like, all right, well, let's do some cool shit. <laughs> and then it just stops. This was great. I'm giving it a buy it. Why the hell wasn't just, wasn't it just like Ant-Man number 10 or whatever? I don't know. I, and they made it like a Secret Wars tie-in and it takes place before anything happens. It was still really fun. 
Spider-Woman number 10 from Marvel. I'm going to put this out there. Spider-Woman is one of the best books Marvel is putting out right now. I got to catch up. Absolutely. Dennis Hopeless has done an amazing job pulling this title out of the depths of crossover hell and elevating it into something with its own voice. This issue features guest art by incoming Moon Girl artist Natasha Bustos, and it's pretty great. I'm giving it a huge buy it. Sound effects and stringers. <laughs> it was something. <laughs> yeah. Holy! Sh- there's a police car behind them. That is your ludicrous speed round. And holy! Sh- there's a police car behind them. Is the sound of a police car pulling over the stringers, as seen in this week's Stringers Number One. The book was full of that stuff. It was really cool. <laughs> of course, we want to know what you thought about all of this week's comics. So pull us over and arrest us with your opinions over at the This Week's Comics section of the THN forums. The Flash is dead. Long live the Flash. The good news is, Barry Allen had no problem finding a new job in the afterlife and instantly became the new Black Racer. Jack Kirby's bizarre vision of the Grim Reaper, you know, if he wore snow skis and chased down the souls of the recently deceased. (laughs) We were thrilled to hear that Barry not only knew that Joe was a huge Flash fan, but didn't know he preferred Wally West and was willing to sit down with us in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss his new job and a couple of next week's comics. Joey. What does the Black Racer have you excited to read next week? My pick for next week is Plutana, number one, from Image Comics, written by Jeff Lemire, with art by Emmy Lennox. Here's your solicit. A brand new heartfelt superhero series by Jeff Lemire and amazing newcomer Emmy Lennox. <laughs> Chris Warren, we just mentioned her. On the Diamond website, that is where the solicit ends. Okay. I had to go online and find this next paragraph. Plutana follows the story of five suburban kids who make a shocking discovery while exploring the woods one day after school. The body of Plutana, the world's greatest superhero. A dark and heartbreaking journey about friendship and coming of age all through the lens of the superhero genre. It's stand by me with a dead superhero, basically. Yeah, absolutely. We've been excited for this one since we talked about it uh, when it was announced at the Image Expo. I'm really looking forward to reading it. I'm glad we don't have to wait two years for it like we did for Airboy. True enough. Matt, what's your pick? My pick for next week is Midnighter, number four from DC, written by Steve Orlando with art by Alec Morgan. Here's your solicit. Grayson and the Midnighter reunited at last. Granted, it wasn't Grayson's idea. And yes, technically Midnighter may have kidnapped him and uh, brought him to Moscow to fight a herd of feral vampires. You know, maybe this reunion is getting off on the wrong foot. Grayson (laughs) and Midnighter are two of the best books that DC are putting out right now. Tim Seeley is working on Grayson, Steve Orlando on Midnighter. I can't tell you how much i love this midnighter book i caught up read the issues two and three the other day and i love this series i also caught up on grayson and it is fantastic i think this is a great place for anyone who's reading one or the other to check out the other character and what's going on i'm saying pick this up it's gonna be fun as hell yeah i need to get caught up big time because i really liked midnighter number one and grayson number one and never read another issue yeah you gotta read them it's excellent the t- <laughs> all right brace yourself because the thn trade of the week goes to neil gaiman's technophage the complete comics volume one hardcover technofaggy <laughs> oh no <laughs> from super genius written by rick veach with art by brian talbot you may have noticed that it's not written by neil gaiman yeah it's 232 pages for 24.99 
the Technophage, a 65 million year old reptile, holds the keys to the universe. An immensely powerful being, Henry Phage has spent his lifetime as a conqueror, using his immense psychic powers and his ability to manipulate wormholes in order to take over planets across galaxies and feed upon the suffering of the denizens within. I got something to feed your wormhole right here. <laughs> Effectively making himself a god. From the Phage building located on the planet Caligul, the Technophage plots and plans the expansion of his intergalactic empire. However, when he turns his sights towards Caligul's sister planet, Earth, did you know we had a sister planet? See, no, I didn't. That's interesting. <laughs> the Technophage encounters a source of resistance that he did not expect. Technocomics was this company that popped up in the 90s, and they were full of these celebrity-endorsed books like Gene Roddenberry's Lost Universe and Isaac Asimov's iBots. And so Neil Gaiman had a book called Mr. Hero, a robot that was kind of like a 1920s pugilist-looking robot. And it was called Mr. Hero, the, Pneum the Pneumatic Man. Pugilist is big word for boxing. Right. And uh, there was a character created by Gaiman in that book called Technophage. And Technophage was popular enough, I guess, that it spun off into his own series. It's now being collected for the first time. Techno Comics is a weird artifact in comics history that most people probably don't remember. They made a huge push in the 90s. Like, they had their own Techno Comics store in the Mall of America, I've been to it. It was a crazy, like, two-year span where this company popped up, spit out a dozen books, and then crashed and burned. With uh, Along with several others. Right. And so this is an old Neil Gaiman idea back into print for the first time. It's got to at least be worth checking out. You know, it's great to see Joe this happy talking to one of his childhood heroes. It's just too bad he doesn't know the Black Racer never leaves alone. I'm sure going to miss you, Joe. Feel, what do you mean? What? Feel what free you? to post your condolences and memories of Joe along what? with what you're excited to read next week. What? Over at the THN forums. I'm right here. He I'm was, still right here. He was so young and full of life. Eh. Well, you manga-loving jerks, you finally got what you wanted. Because you demanded it, Matt and I sat down and read an entire manga backwards and from right to left for this month's edition of Take a Look, It's in a Book. I was so confused. I was trying to read the words backwards, too. I'm like, am I doing this right? <laughs> <laughs> like Zatanna spells. <laughs> That's right, That's yo, taco weirdos. This month, Joe and I sat down and read volume one of Naoki Urasawa's Pluto, the first of eight Tankoban volumes. I'm sure that means something to someone. Urasawa is also the author of 20th Century Boys and Monster, both of which are celebrated manga series that have had awards heaped upon them in Japan. Here, Urasawa teams with co-writer Takashi Nagasaki and Makoto Tezuka, son of Osamu Tezuka. You might recognize that name because Osamu Tezuka is widely regarded as the father of manga and his best-known creation was Astro Boy, or the Mighty Atom, as he's known in Japan. Astro Boy is as important to manga as Superman is to American comics. And with Pluto... I don't believe it. <laughs> Urasawa is updating Tezuka's Astro Boy for a modern audience. Astro Boy really is that big of a deal. He's basically the first manga character in Japan. He is their Superman, more or less. Without him, there's no manga. 
I have read Tezuka's Buddha and some of his Phoenix mangas. I picked up some of the reprints of Astro Boy that Dark Horse did way back in the day. And while his work is truly amazing, I found the dialogue a little stilted and somewhat strange, which I'm sure is due to translation. And oh, yeah, it's it's got to be translation issues. Right. And if you go back and read classic Superman stories, I mean, from the 40s, they don't make a whole lot of sense or hold up very well today either. This stuff is old and we appreciate where it came from and the seeds that it planted for the future. Here, Urasawa is updating this story and he steers it away from Astro Boy and instead he focuses on Geist, we'll call him. G-E-I-S-C-H-T, you guys tell me. He's an android investigator from Europool looking into the deaths of some of the world's most powerful robots beginning with the murder of Mount Blanc a beloved Swiss mountain robot that protected the forests of the Alps and loved children. Notice I said murder and not destruction. This is a world where humans and sentient robots live side by side in relative peace. The robots in this story, though, come off as human characters rather than cold machines. This is very much in the spirit of Blade Runner, where you have these androids that look... Some robots look obviously like robots, like Mont Blanc is this big, bulky, classic-looking manga robot, whereas the main character, Geist, or whatever his damn name is... Jessict. Jessict? Or Gessict. Okay, we'll say Gessict. I like it. Gessict is a very human-looking android, but we meet all these different robots that go anywhere from looking completely human to looking like a vacuum cleaner with a face, really posing these questions like, what is humanity? And sort of exploring, is a sentient robot life as important as a human being's life? And the fact that an android investigator is looking into the murders of these robots makes it even more interesting. It is so human and well done here. Like, the story opens with this murder of Mont Blanc. And I was like, just like what? <laughs> this is a Swiss mountain robot that, like... <laughs> You know, protected the forests and loved the animals and took pictures with kids. And when he dies, it's like a worldwide event, like Mother Teresa dying or something. People are upset. People are crying. And he's died horribly. He was this really powerful robot that was basically torn to shreds by something, which launches the investigation. I was instantly pulled into this. And I got to say, one of the things that manga creators like Urasawa, who is arguably one of the best out there, one of the things they can do that American writers can't seem to do is crank out these stories. And he writes and draws this. This is an eight-volume story that took place over like five years, printed in a magazine, that he cranked out. And one of the things I don't understand is why these mangas start in color and then move to black and white. Somebody lay it on me. Tell me why they do that. I don't I think it. it's just to get you, you know, to start the story with a punch. I guess. I just don't And get then it. ease into it. Regardless, I enjoyed the hell out of this way more than I thought I was going to. And I don't think just because it's styled more towards American readers, I think it's just a genuinely great story. And the twist that they're putting on it, following a different character instead of Astro Boy, like we don't even meet Astro Boy or Adam, they're calling him here, until the very last page. Instead, we get the story of three different robots that are being hunted by 
this unseen bad guy and we get their sort of life stories and each one is so compelling and beautiful yeah i totally agree you know the book starts out you know immediately following the destruction of mont blanc we're introduced to gesicht and the idea that he keeps having these dreams that he's being chased or is chasing something and then there's a an act of violence that we don't see and then he wakes up from a nightmare and these dreams are plaguing him throughout the book it it, it pops up more than once and so we're introduced to the idea that these robots, they dream and they have families and jobs and, and children even. They're more human sometimes than even the human characters who, you know, treat them with disdain in a lot of cases. Uh, at the halfway point, the book completely shifts focus away from Gesicht and starts following the story of another robot. Um, North number North two. number two. Yeah. Who is assigned to be the attendant of this aging blind composer. According to Wikipedia, he is a Scottish robot with six mechanical armed arms, <laughs> formerly one of the most powerful fighting robots during the 39th Central Asian War. He prefers not to fight, choosing instead to work as the butler of a composer. Yeah. And so you learn these robots have desires and they want to be treated as human. Like North number two, all he wants to do is learn how to play the piano. He wants to learn how to make music. And at first the composer will have nothing of it. He says, robots can't feel music. You know, you have to be able to feel you. You, you don't understand. All you can do is replicate. That's not making music, you know? Yeah. He really questions the sentience of the robot itself. Basically saying you cannot be a human. You cannot create art. That is an inherently human attribute right and over the course of those chapters it's three acts in the book acts four through six you see the composer slowly warming to him and, and starting to view north number two as a companion rather than a a servant or an employee you know it's almost too late because just after they start to form a real friendship north number two has to go off and fight the thing that killed mont blanc and it's that this thing comes tragic. looking for him because North right. Number Two is like one of the most powerful robots in the world. Right. And it's this really tragic moment where North Number Two flies off into battle. And while he's battling, he starts to hum this tune that he learned from the composer that was important to the composer as a child. And so you don't actually see the fight. You just see the composer like staring up at the sky where the, these explosions are happening and hearing this music that his mother hummed to him as a child and he breaks out into tears. Like it's one of the most emotional scenes I've ever read in a comic book. <laughs> yeah. I, I was taken aback. I really, and the whole story, the way it's handled, like I always thought Astro boy was just like this stupid little robot kid who fought in this bizarre, you know, Japanese anime or manga story that I just never had any care about. And here, I mean, there was a lot going on in that story. I admit I don't know enough about it to, you know, it, that's just stupid American me looking at it there. It's a very, very important story. And the way that Urasawa has updated it and really injected serious emotion into these characters, I can't say enough. I burned through this. I read this in one evening, sat down. Yeah. It's like, oh God, this is going to take forever. I read this in like two hours and yeah, me too. I've never bought manga before. I'm going to buy this complete series and I'm going to read it because 
This was amazing. After that, I might have to tackle like 20th Century Boys or something, which is 20 volumes. So, I don't know. <laughs> Let's not get crazy. No, no. But I, I cannot give this a bigger buy it. I want to thank Chase Magnet for forcing us to read this, dragging us kicking and screaming into the manga world. This was amazing. And the art, it's truly incredible. True, like these guys, they just draw on a different level than we see with a lot of artists in the States. And it's not like a ridiculous manga cartoon style. It's very realistic. It's very kinetic. It's very detailed. And I mean, these books are huge. They're mammoth. And there's eight of them, you know? <laughs> it's just crazy. But the amount of work that they pour into this. I'm not sure how manga artists do what they do. And I know that there are tools out there right now that help you draw backgrounds and perspective and sure. buildings and stuff. Sure. That while it still takes, you know, skill to do it, they at least assist you. You look at this book and you look just at like the architecture and the backgrounds and then how it seamlessly transitions from these mammoth future cityscapes to yeah, the Swiss Alps. And I can't imagine the skill and the and the effort it takes to be able to draw just the rooms and the buildings yeah. that these characters are in. And, the, and not just that, but I mean, the guy's writing it, too. I mean, yeah. he's an amazing double threat. This is incredible. Like on the level of uh, like Craig Thompson, maybe, <laughs> you know, like sure. Or like a like a Jack Kirby. Who yes. Was able to create these these amazing landscapes in his comics. You know, can you think of an American writer and illustrator that you would trust to update the story of Superman to just say brand new origin, brand new character? I mean, like we've seen it done several times and I can't tell you once where I got goosebumps, you know, reading it, honestly. Right. And and when it whenever it happens, it's usually somebody that's like the most trusted. Right. And it's just the, one of the guys. most revered one of the most revered names in comics. You know, it, John Byrne in the eighties, Mark Wade uh with Superman Birthright, and then Jeff Johns did it with Superman Secret Origin. These are things that only happen by the top names in the industry. And even then, they're only allowed to do so much different with the character before people freak out and go crazy here as far as i can tell they have completely gutted the story of astro boy and just updated it and made it awesome this was a stunning piece of work it really was and i'm so thankful that i had the chance to read it and like you i'm gonna get i'm gonna go out and find the rest of the volumes in the series because i'm really invested in the story of Gesicht. And I want to know more about Adam and see how that progresses. It's just, it was a real treat. Yeah, I can't. And it's give a this huge buy it for me as well. Same here. Can't give it a bigger buy it. Being the cold, lifeless robots we are, Matt and I may have totally missed the mark on our first foray into the manga world. So let us know what we got wrong about Pluto over at the THN forums. And don't forget to drop us some suggestions for a trade or graphic novel you'd like to hear us review. Next month, we'll be reading Craig Thompson's first foray into children's comics, Space Dumplings. So pick up your copy if you want to read along. You'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear this sound. Sort of break it, break it down like this. 
And that is it for Super Lucky Fun Time Manga episode of THN. If you are also sporting Inuyasha dog ears and a Sailor Moon skirt, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And while you're there, leave us your star ratings, reviews, your thumbs up, and your little hearts, because it helps us to connect with other potential listeners. It's still cool to make fun of how weird some manga is, right? Like, oh, I don't want to... I don't want to lose that ability now that I'm a fan. Well, keep in mind the vast, I mean, just like American comics, 90% of it, I'm going to say 90% of it is crap. You know, <laughs> and it's the same with anything, music, food, you know, any art, 90% of it sucks, but it's a 10% out there that is amazing, you know, that you find rare gems and you go, wow, I love this stuff. Join us next month while, where we'll, we'll be reviewing The Prince of Tennis, Volumes 1 through 10. <laughs> Thanks to all of our donors. And if you want to help support THN, you can do so by clicking our PayPal button at TwoHeadedNerd.com. And if you want to become a sustaining member, it's as easy as clicking the Make This Donation Monthly box. And as little as a dollar a month really does help. If you are interested in sponsoring THN, shoot us an email with the subject line, Sponsorship. While at TwoHeadedNerd.com, you can find links to all of our contact info via Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Skype, Tumblr, where we post the weekly outtakes, and the Ziggurat Hotline, 402-819-4894. That is how you get a hold of us. And don't forget to go sign up for the THN forums. This is your little virtual piece of the ziggurat where you can discuss this week's show. You can ask us to review your self-published comics. You can learn more about our segments and how you can become a part of them. Or baby, you can just rap about comics. If you dig the music you hear on the show, you can follow our soundtrack playlist on Spotify by searching for Matt Bomb's Spotify profile. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to the TD Dubs himself, Tony Dugright, and his wife, Mrs. Dubs, who gave birth to their third child this week, Beatrix Pickles Wright. Hey, don't look at me. I didn't name her. Pickles? Really? <laughs> probably not. I probably got the name wrong. Okay. Where do you write, family? Tony? Get back to your sex kennel. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics because your retailer just might stop carrying the perverted tentacle porn you love so much. If you don't, this is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off. <laughs>